podcast kicked off two years ago this week, aiming to push back on mainstream media conformity to reaffirm old school journalistic values like viewpoint diversity and curiosity and respect, and in some small way to hopefully help widen the Overton window of ideas considered acceptable for discussion and debate. Well, happily, this approach seems to be resonating with a lot of you. We're pleased to say that we now have listeners in 150 countries and close to 5,000 cities worldwide. For our anniversary episode this week, I'm delighted to be joined by a journalist I admire, whose work I have looked to as an example for our times. Michael Powell is a staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine and a former reporter at The New York Times, where he covered free speech, college campuses, and identity politics. He's also the author of Canyon Dreams, A Basketball Season on the Navajo Nation. Michael Powell is my guest today on Lean Out. Michael, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you very much. My pleasure. It's so nice to have you on uh, for our second anniversary episode. When I was still at the newsroom at CBC working as a rank and file current affairs producer, you were one of the journalists that I looked to that helped me feel like I wasn't losing my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to talk today about a few of your stories that I have really admired. But first, let's talk a little bit about your background. You have worked as a doorman, a cabbie, an activist tenant organizer in Brooklyn before becoming a journalist in the 80s. How did these jobs prepare you for reporting? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, you know, actually, I think all were really helpful. I mean, you know, and some of those are just simply some of the skills, you know, if you're going after a landlord that isn't providing heat and you've got to research the building and the mortgage and the banks and all that kind of stuff. So there's just this sort of practical stuff, but really the the more substantial was, and particularly being a cabbie and a doorman, is it, I think it's very useful. I mean, I grew up, you know, middle-class kid in New York City, and it's very useful to suddenly find yourself on the other side of the upstairs, downstairs, you know, where you're well, in both jobs, kind of, you know, you can be absolutely invisible to the people that you're taking around. And in fact, they can treat you as invisible, you know, and 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 that's a very, I think that's a, that's something I would recommend for everyone. I mean, I happen to actually really enjoy being a cab driver, just because it, New York at that time, it was like the demi-monde, and it was part of all of that. But really more substantially is it just gives you a sense of what it's like to work hard for your money and for people who don't see you. And that's part of what I think when we're doing, when we're committing journalism well, it's writing on those who are not seen or or not heard enough of. And so that was, yeah, that was, that was great. And, and, you know, frankly, in the, in tenant organizing, I was working in an East in East Flatbush, which was a West Indian neighborhood had recently undergone tumultuous racial change. It had gone from like basically a low income, working class Irish Italian neighborhood to virtually the same economics, but entirely West Indian and Haitian. And it 
was often very moving to watch people who came here working really hard, you know, freezing in their buildings, and that, in a sense, sometimes the organizing was almost easy because, you know, people were were like, why are we, why is this happening to me? Why are why are we putting up with this? And when I go back, and I don't. <laughs> I don't credit three years as a tenant organizer with this, but now it is very moving to go back to that same neighborhood and where there were all these abandoned storefronts and smoke shops and everything else. There's now, I mean, it has problems, but there is a thriving neighborhood that's you know now largely second generation West Indian and Haitian. There's even some whites moving in. I mean, it's an, it's an, it, so anyway, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did all of that before I got into journalism. I also want to spend a moment on 9-11, a huge news event, obviously, and for New York City. You were the New York bureau chief for the Washington Post at that point. Tell us about a long piece you wrote for the style section about three months out from the attack about how New York City was recovering and what did reporting on that moment teach you about your city? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that, as I recall, dimly with that piece, what I was dealing with in part was this, the sense of shock and dislocation that, you know, one minute, it was kind of like, you know, it almost reminded me of reading like a history of, say, Europe right before World War One or something. I mean, there was just this sense of one moment you've got this city that takes New York is nothing but takes great pride in its centrality to the the globe, if not the universe. And suddenly you have this startling attack on the core. I mean, we lost a friend, everybody lost somebody in that. And it was, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I had moved back to the city. I grew up, as I say, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I and then lived for a long time in Brooklyn. And we moved back. My family got back nine days before. I had been here a couple of months, and you know, and the assumption was, and they came back. That my arguments, my wife was, "Hey, babe, we're going to go to the theater. We're going to do all these things that we hadn't really done when the kids were really little." And of course, then I disappeared for a year. Then we all kind of disappeared into this maelstrom. And I'm also glad, though, I remember my wife saying, and she, also a native New Yorker, had been reluctant to come back because we had had a really nice life in Washington. And, um, you know, that she felt protective of the city in that moment, which is a strange thing because New York is, you know, I mean, New York's a wonderful city, but, you know, it can be temple throbbing and give you a headache. And it's 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 not always a place that evokes tenderness, but that evoked a real sense of tenderness. You know, the only time in my reporting life where, you know, you interview people and end up hugging each other. And it, it was a very... Um, it was a very moving time and gave me, and I don't want to overstate this given what people are going through today, but it gave me an insight into what it's like to live in wartime because I was down there when the towers fell and it just was, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad, glad. Well, yes, if it had to happen, I'm glad I was here because I did feel like this was my city and and felt a tenderness towards it that is not necessarily my daily bread. 
And that moment was striking for the kind of unity and humanity that I think was felt, not just in New York, but in a lot of places. That is something that we're missing a lot in the moment we're in right now. There's a lot of polarization and and that extends to the media as well. And, and one of the criticisms we journalists have heard a lot is that we are elites who treat the working class and even sometimes the middle class as, as an other, reporting on them sometimes as if they're zoo animals that we observe from afar. This also extends to, you know, rural stories as well. But you have made a concerted effort in your work to try to understand people of different backgrounds on a very human level. And you have written a lot about how economics impacts people's lives. How much of the polarization in your country that we're experiencing right now, how do, how much do you think of that can be attributed to class and economics? That's a great question. I mean, I think even as I think about giving a, you know, an answer, of course, you immediately think of of, of 14 counter arguments, but it's clear. I'm, I, let me back maybe by way of example. I mean, I, I constantly see this. You see it on Twitter or X, but you also see it, you, you see it in columns that this puzzlement that Americans consistently say they find the economy not performing well. And we're told, and frankly, it comes from my class and you know, I grew up a liberal New Yorker, and and it's like this this puzzlement, right? No, no, it's actually doing pretty well. Inflation's coming down, but not only is it not that bad, it's actually quite good. And to me, I mean, I, I I think it's a much more complicated picture, and I think a lot of people are living a lot closer to the edge than that acknowledges. And there's all sorts of ways in which higher interest rates greatly complicate people's lives. I mean, frankly, I see it. My son lives in Texas. He's also, God help him, a journalist. And, you know, he and his wife would like to buy a house, but interest rates now are running close to 8%. I mean, that just makes it so much more difficult. And that kind of a story, I mean, and that plays out with student loans and all kinds of things that go all across the board. Uh, if one wants to argue that well, this isn't all Biden's fault. Sure. I mean, you know, economies are, are very complicated animals and they're, and that's not any one president or party or whatever. But if you want to argue, no, 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 it's really good. <laughs> you know, everything's better. I just think that runs like go out into a neighborhood, go to East Flatbush. I mean, I, I often think the same thing with crime, you know, when we argue Again, as you hear often in the, the press, well, it's really not bad. Yeah. Go to Anacostia. Go to Ivy City in, in southeast Washington, D.C., or the south side of Chicago. I mean, that's just, it, it reflects, again, there are complicated reasons, right? I'm not like, I'm not arguing, oh, this is the fault of X or Y or Z. But, but no, there's a, it's a really dangerous, these are dangerous places, Memphis. Baltimore, Philly. I mean, you know, you kind of go on and on. And I just think when I when I read these pieces that feel kind of arid, I just wonder, you know, like, come on. I mean, you know, even if you want to argue, well, as has been argued, but sure, Baltimore, for instance, has seen a drop in murder. It has. That's wonderful. It's also on its way to homicides per capita that would be double New York City at its worst ever in 1990. So 
try going into central Baltimore and making that argument. I just think it's it's it it reflects an unfortunate impulse <laughs> uh, in in a fair amount of reporting. And I wonder how much of that, I think about this all the time. Like when I started, I guess, around 22 years ago, I was a music critic. I covered hip hop. And so I was out all the time. And then at some point in my career, we were on the phone all the time. And now we're on Zoom all the time. <laughs> what do we lose with that, just that structural progression? Oh, I think, you know, your, <laughs> your question is the answer. I mean, we lose a lot. Yeah, I mean to really sound like you know an old man but i remember like one of my first jobs was at a paper in new jersey and our editor there i guess it was every two or three weeks he would demand that we not literally you can't come into the office all day long you know and back then it wasn't i mean this was really before the advent of the cell phone it was just you had to go to your whatever towns you were covering or cities you were covering and spend all day and then you had to come back with a story um, and it was a great, it was a great exercise. And in a sense, I mean, when I look at tenant organizing or cab driving, I mean, those are things that took me out into neighborhoods. And I am always struck that when you do that, you know, you complicate things, complicate things for yourself. Assumptions are flipped over and you can't, you just can't do that on the phone. And look, I'm not trying to, I mean, there are some wonderful younger reporters. Like, so this isn't, I don't want to have this, like one of these get off my lawn moments. You know, I mean, I think there's also a great deal of pressure on reporters to, you know, particularly those who are not lucky enough to work at the New York Times or Atlantic Magazine to turn stuff over really quickly, sometimes two and three stories a day. And the ability to do what we do well. I was just uh, eviscerated when that happens. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about a couple of the stories that you've covered that have really stood out to me. And one of those, I mean, this has been a pretty wild time to be a journalist this last couple of years. And in, in early 2020, you traded in your post on the New York Times sports beat to cover identity, culture, and free speech, a new beat for the Times. And one of your early pieces uh, was about a New York chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America protesting a talk by Adolf Reed, a Black Marxist professor about the role of class in the in the pandemic. Can you tell our listeners just the brief outlines of that story and what drew you to it? Sure. Well, for one thing, I, I knew Adolf Reed. I mean, he is a really a eminent professor, as they say. He'd been, I think, last before he retired, was working at the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, a hard, tough intellect. Whether you agree with him on everything, irrelevant. I mean, he's a, a really bright guy so the and a marxist as you say so so here he's invited to speak to the new york chapter of democratic socialists of america the biggest chapter by far in that party and there is a a, a great uproar what are we inviting him for he argues for he argues for the you know that 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 class difference and class solidarity also probably more to the point are far more important than race gender identity he doesn't argue those are irrelevant but he argues that look if you want to build a working class middle class movement around 
you know, pick your issue, unionization, foreclosure, house. I mean, you know, you kind of go on and on. If your intent is to locate our difference or to say that, well, if you're, these are his words, if you're black, if you're transgender, if you're whatever, you know, and he would go right across the the spectrum, um, that that's what's most important. We're going to privilege that. He believes that's just a cockeyed way of looking at organizing and that, you know, what you should do is look at the very substantial shared suffering and 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 shared yearnings uh, across class, you know, particularly within class. This just was like blew the mind of a lot of DSA and they ended up, um, you know, to use the word, I mean, word I didn't use, but canceling, deplatforming him, saying he could not speak there. And, uh, and there were, you know, in fairness to DSA, there were also a number of folks who were outraged by that and who said, no, you know, how could we not invite perhaps the most preeminent black Marxist in America, even if we're uncomfortable with, you know, some of what he has to say. Um, so it struck me as like one of those things that just spoke to that moment we were living. Mm-hmm. And I'm so curious, I mean, for you writing about that in that particular moment, this is, this is the summer of 2020. <laughs> what were the pressures on you as a journalist working through that story and getting that story out there? You know, I was I was very lucky in that I had a powerful editor, was my editor, who backed me. And 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 we had both agreed that when I took on this beat, that frankly the New York Times had done a bad job on this. The cultural tide was running was running against us, you know, strongly. The, the the notion of kind of speech expression that was very constrained. So I got a lot of backing there and <laughs> and a lot of pushback, you know, elsewhere. But I did and I continue to believe that the, these are crucial questions for us and that we were not at that time really were not talking about. Another story that really stands out is um, about a Black astrophysicist, Hakim Olusheyi, who I subsequently had on the podcast. And your story ended up being on the massively popular The Daily podcast that The Times does as well, and I, which I took as a sign that some of these third rail stories are becoming a little less third rail. Can you briefly explain the outlines of that story about Dr. Olusheyi and, and the public reaction to it? Sure. I mean, it is a kind of a complicated story. I mean, straightforward in one way and complicated in another. He, the, there was this debate over the naming of the new deep space telescope, and it was to be called the James Webb Telescope. There was a an, an uproar arose among left, I guess, was the was what, what united them, but kind of identity-driven left. Um, that, well, you know, Webb had been a part of a gay purge, they argued, incorrectly as it turns out, at the State Department when he had been there in 1949 and 1950. Olu was asked originally to sign on to one of these letters protesting this because he's a reasonably prominent physicist and astronomer. And he said, well, before I do that, I want to look at this. And the more he looked to his really enduring credit, and I should say he's a black astrophysicist from a very poor family in Louisiana and Houston. And 
I mean, kind of has his own remarkable tale. And to his credit, he just said, no, uh, you know, not only am I not going to sign, I'm going to research this fully. I'm going to go into the archives, the National Archives. I'm going to talk to historians. And he ended up writing a piece on, um, I think it was Medium, on a public you know, media uh, platform. And then he just got savaged for that. You know, that he's, you know, he's a straight guy. He doesn't understand anything. I mean, it it got very nasty. Ironically, I mean, in doing the piece, I called some gay historians. In fact, probably the preeminent gay historian of that time. And and he completely backed up what Hakeem was was arguing. And then, you know, then then it got very nasty because the story that is because there was a turn on Hakeem and an effort to suggest that he had essentially engaged in sexual har- you know, harassment. It was a, this really pretty ugly whisper campaign. And in the course of doing those things, and I'm sure you deal with this also as a reporter, it's like, you know, I took, frankly, some months on my part because you don't, the last thing you want to do is have a piece that comes out. And then it turns out, you know, somebody stands up and says, no, he really, you know, he harassed me. There was nothing to it. I mean, I'm quite confident in, in that because I talked to an awful lot of people. But it spoke to, you know, so I guess it to me, I mean, it spoke to the kind of the, not just our political moment around kind of identity, but also the destructive, the kind of personal, you know, I'm not just going to disagree with you. I'm going to take you down. You're not going to, you're going to be read out of polite society, essentially, academic society. And, you know, I think probably it hurt Hakeem in in some ways, those things, even though the New York Times puts a piece on the front page, even though the Daily does the piece, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I know he's been denied speaking engagements and this sort of thing. So it's, um, yeah, it was an unfortunately instructive piece, I thought, on kind of this moment in our culture. And I'm I'm very curious about the role of the reporter in this moment and this really destructive behavior that that you're describing. And I was thinking about this in the context you also recently reported on UL Inbar, a University of Toronto professor who criticized DEI statements on a podcast five years ago and lost a job at UCLA over it. Now that is a not as an extreme example, but it shows that this is still very much alive and well. And these kinds of stories, like very few people in the media want to touch them because it does run the risk of turning that great, big, hostile spotlight on yourself. What is it about you as a person that you don't run from it, that you run to it? Yeah, well, that's, the, you know, how do I answer that? Like in a non-self-aggrandizing way. I mean, I look, I there maybe there's a virtue to being somewhat older i mean there's there's some downsides but but you know i have done a lot of reporting ironically you know at an earlier stage of my career i did a lot of reporting on poverty and other things and would get attacked you know as a leftist and 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 this sort of thing so it's it, it was it's an interesting spin that way but i think you know mainly i mean in all seriousness i think there's I grew up, and look, that's just the fortune of of the time I happened to grow up in the you know seventies and eighties when free speech 
and free expression were primary values of to be a liberal, to be even on the left. That was the time of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, suing to allow Nazis to walk through a Jewish suburb of Chicago. There was just, it was understood that that, and I think probably also because it was, I mean, well before my time, but it was kind of in the in the historical shadow of the McCarthy, Joe McCarthy era, there was just a sense that like that deplatforming people, I mean, words didn't exist back then, you know, or censoring people because of their, what they have to say um, was fundamentally illiberal, fundamentally not a progressive act. And so I guess as I, looked at taking this on yeah i knew there was going to be like pushback first place my friends are my friends they know who i am you know there's always on on social media you never know who you are you don't recognize yourself most of the time so i i you can't worry about that that much and it just felt like for the it felt like an important moment to do this kind of reporting and that's what you look for as a reporter right like like what's no one else, well, I shouldn't say no one else, there were some people doing it, but there weren't a lot of people doing this. And it was really important, I thought, for, I don't know, you know, to the extent that, that any anything we write has a larger impact on society, and who knows, right? I mean, on any given thing, something you think has a lot of effect is no effect, and something you write quickly all of a sudden. But it, it felt important. It just felt like urgent something urgent to write about. And you you were at the New York Times during some pretty turbulent years. You're at the Atlantic now. Um, but during the pandemic, we saw the James Bennett departure, the Barry Weiss resignation, generational tensions in the newsroom, and more recently, the open letter from contributors over trans coverage. What can you tell us about what the mood was like on the inside during some of those years? Yeah, well, certainly 2020, right? I mean, so you have COVID arrives, you know, George Floyd is killed two and a half months later, and it was like all hell broke loose. I mean, I, you know, it was, it was just, um, I mean, all hell broke loose in the culture, but also within the newsroom. And, um, and it was funny, you know, because when I think about it, when, when COVID first happened, I remember saying to my editor, well, I wonder if this this new beat I'm on, it feels all of a sudden very irrelevant. I mean, we have this thing that may kill, you know, millions and millions or is going to kill millions and millions of us. And of course, it turned out that it did kill and that there was this this enormous change in the culture. But the, I mean, it was very tense inside the newsroom, you know, like when the Tom, you know, famously or infamously, there was the op-ed page had contracted with Tom Cotton, a very conservative United States senator, to write a column calling for essentially the National Guard to come into some of the cities where there was a lot of rioting. And the argument was immediately made that to publish this, you know, put reporters at risk, that this was unsafe. And, you know, there were more than a thousand of my colleagues, including many people I respect, who signed on to a letter denouncing that. I did not. And and actually, because I was also in the union, the union was organizing this, and I was a, a shop steward in the union. I argued that this was antithetical to 
journalism that we need that an op-ed page in particular and in particular frankly at a liberal paper like the new york times it's incredibly important to hear from people like tom cotton even if you 100 percent disagree with him even if you rage and you throw the paper at the wall i mean that's that's what we do i mean it's speech is unruly thought is unruly but this was certainly his op-ed reflected a strong current in the culture at that at that time and uh and that got very look it got very polarized i mean as you allude to barry weiss uh, editor in the op-ed ended up quitting not long after that the head of the editorial page james bennett also ended up resigning and i thought it was a i mean and i was not alone there were definitely other writers who did not sign that letter albeit we were in a minority but i i found it yeah i found it very charged and and depressing depressing you know how much um yeah the extent to which the kind of it was an interesting like in a sense of experience of kind of tribal tribalism i mean you know you had the decision had been made by a lot of reporters that this was beyond the pale that we were going to turn it down and i thought unfortunately and i mean i have a lot of respect for ag salzberger and for dean paquet who are you know was a i think a largely a terrific editor but i i did think in that moment they came up short and and that there was a a need to express you know the kind of the importance of the values there there was a need to to stand up to that tide in your view do you think the new york times has begun correcting course yeah i i yes i do for sure i mean frankly my beat was part of that i mean my editor is now the managing editor of the paper my my specific editor on that beat and she was terrific and provided, you know, I think cover, you know, for me at, at, at times or had my back is a better way to put it. I mean, I didn't ask for cover, but I wanted, you know, but it is good to know your editor has your back. And when this past spring, there was a letter attacking the Times over its transgender coverage, which I think the coverage itself was in the last year has been really quite good, quite terrific. I mean, the editor of the paper, Joe Kahn, stood up for that coverage and and admonished those who were staff. A couple, there had been a couple staff members who signed on to a letter attacking their colleagues, a public letter, and he admonished them. And I think that was absolutely right. I mean, if you're outside the paper, by all means, shoot at us. I mean, that's that's part of the, you know, that's part of being in the free press. But if you're on staff, you should be you should have the guts to go up to that person and scream and yell and hopefully have a coffee and eventually agree to disagree but not sign letters denouncing them so i think that things have changed i i'll be it slow i mean look you know better than i i mean because you you ply these these waters a lot there's still a powerful current in the culture uh liberal liberal kind of liberal left culture that makes it hard to do this. And I always thought that the best sign for the times would be if there were six people doing what I did, you know, with all different angles and, you know, and, and, and I don't think we've arrived 
at that moment. But, but as you allude to, like the Daily did a big piece on Hakeem Molise, that was fantastic. And it was a very, you know, really complex, interesting piece. So, yeah, I think, you know, I, I do see some signs of change. Do you? Yeah, I really do. I really do. And it, it has been very extreme in Canada, and we are still in quite an extreme moment. But I find it is more and more mainstream to talk about these kinds of stories. I'm finding the mainstream coming around to these kinds of stories much more. Like me personally, I'm a lot less controversial than I used to be. Yeah. <laughs> which is a happy development. <laughs> yeah, it is a happy development. <laughs> <laughs> But I do feel quite optimistic, actually. I'm curious, what what made you decide to go to the Atlantic? Purely um, challenge. I mean, you know, it's cliche, but I mean, it 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 just magazine writing gives a a chance to write kind of at more length, more in my own voice. I mean, I was, you know, I'd been a metro columnist and a sports columnist where I had a lot of voice in both cases. And voice also means, you know, often a point of view. And for the last three years, you know, I've had to be properly very careful. And and I think, frankly, you know, I mean, that was my decision and my editor's decision. I think it was wise, right? That to the extent you're going to convince anyone, you're not going to do it by coming out and being in my case, like a culture warrior or something. But I did like the idea that I could go somewhere and not just write, because I'm not just writing on what I used to write on. I will do some of that and some other different things, but just do it more in my own voice and, you know, and, and, and use some muscles that, that I haven't used in a while. And just to sort of wrap up, I wanted to ask you a couple quick questions on journalism. And journalist and author Amanda Ripley wrote a really compelling piece a few years back about the journalist's primary job being to complicate the narrative. This is something you mentioned earlier on. Get into the complications, the tensions, sit with the unresolved contradictions. I think this is something your work does just so exceptionally well. But others in journalism now see our role as journalists very differently. They believe we must have moral clarity. Talk to me a little bit about how you think through these debates over the aspiration of objectivity. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and I, I confess that for probably my first 10 or 15 years in journalism, I really balked at objectivity. Just, I mean, in debates with friends and stuff. I mean, I and I and I eventually kind of settled on fairness, which is really just a cousin of of objectivity. But that, you know, and not just fairness, you know, well, I I, I quoted him. You know, but, and I guess that this gets to where I'm at now is like, did you really engage with that argument to the extent that there is a strong argument, even if it runs counter to the conclusions I may have in a piece, did I really engage with that? And I see that as absolutely so it's like, and essentially it's like, right, I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I got an opinion about everything, right? So I can't imagine like going out on a big piece where I probably didn't have some instinctive, you know, this is the problem. But are you willing to challenge your, your starting point? Really challenge it. Like, like where you just say, you know what, I think this was wrong and you're only and I, so I guess so when I he, when I see and and some colleagues do right argue that you know no no our job is about truth 
I mean, really? How do you know the truth? Like, I mean, who who appointed me or you? I mean, you know, you can, I mean, you can see a true injustice, right? You can, I don't know, let's use like, you know, I got to East Flatbush, do a story on um, tenants, you know, tenants not getting heat and hot water. True injustice. There's not a need to like, you know, nobody should be freezing, right? But there may be another story there about, in fact, I saw this even when I was an organizer, West Indian, you know, small businessman who tried to buy this building, takes it over, the rent roll doesn't, you know, there's not a, doesn't match what he needs to, to get the stuff to get the heat and the hot water there aren't repair programs he's i mean you know all this because if it doesn't say in the end you have to provide heat and hot water so there is in that sense a fundamental truth there but there's all kinds of complications right i mean there's crime again i've in fact i've had this experience because i did a column on this some years ago i went out to east flatbush and it was around all the time with uh, all the controversy around police brutality. Absolutely important question. At the same time, when I would talk to these homeowners, all black homeowners, they all wanted the police. I mean, and and if you took the time to talk with them, and again, if you didn't just, you know, they wanted the police. They also had teenage sons. They didn't want the police beating up their sons. I mean, they, it was a complicated, and it was so much more interesting than if I had just gone out, talked to a couple of 20-year-olds, not to dismiss that experience. That's a, that's a live reality, too. And just said, you know, God, this is, you know, this is an, a, a, an oppressive, you know, occupying force. It's just life is, it's just so much more interesting frankly. I mean, you know, selfishly, it's just a more interesting story. Absolutely. And just just lastly, Michael, I mean, one of the themes of this podcast, I, I know you listen, so you probably know this has, has been the steep decline of trust in the mainstream media. I ask this of journalists a lot, so I'm going to close with this question today. In your view, why have we lost trust? And in 2024, how do we get it back? Yeah, I mean, the the you know, I do think the decline of trust in fairness to journalists is is part of a. You know, I mean, there is the this a larger erosion, right? I mean, we have our societies, probably more so the United States and Canada, though I know Canada has you know enormous tensions as well. I mean, things are so tense and so polarized that even if you do your very best job to get a, you know to get a complication you're going to have a lot of problems dealing with that. That said, I have found, I mean, if you go out and you take the time to talk to people, even people who might look at you cross-eyed because you're, you know, you're Michael Powell from the New York goddamn times. And, you know, what do you think I'm going to talk to you? Like if you, if you just kind of stay there, you kind of sit it out, you can actually often, not always, but often get into a really interesting discussion with someone. So I think, <laughs> that giving voice to that and look i i very much favor lively writing but you know we've had this argument and and, and it's an ongoing one you know we should call fascism for what it is we should call racism for what it is now truly racist yes we should i mean and and you know it's truly fascist i'm not arguing for going easy on a, a neo-nazi 
but I think it it's a real dangerous trap for us. I think that, you know, we're better off write well, write what people are saying, write what write the truth. I mean the truth, the small t truth, right? Right. Like write what you you see, where your reporting has taken you. But I think this kind of the sense that we need to be performative, doing a performative dance as we do it. Like, like why? I mean, what what do we gain from that? So I don't think that's the whole reason that we've lost. You know, I mean, I I really do see many many larger problems. But I I think we've been, yeah, we've not done ourselves, we've done ourselves a disservice in the past. You know, five years. Uh, particularly, I think, under Trump. Well, that is a good place to leave it. I appreciate you so much. I really admire your work. And, and thank you for coming on for the second anniversary episode. Well, thank you. As you know, I've admired your work as well, and I've been listening to you. So it's my pleasure. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's special two-year anniversary episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts.